1: favorite parts about building a brewery is actually building out the draft system whether it's a or whether it's a tower just building one out is a good time and a great project today i have josh steuben and todd burns from the homebrew happy hour podcast and we're going to talk all about draft systems today on homebrewing diy Drop a magnetic scrubber into your carboy and be able to scrub away all of the grime in that hard-to-clean crucin. They are no match for Scrubber Duckies, and you can get yours today at scrubberduckies.com. Once again, head over to scrubberduckies.com. And welcome back to Homebrewing DIY, the podcast that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing. Gadgets, contraptions, and parts, this podcast covers it all. On today's show, we're talking to Joshua Stubing and Todd Burns of the Homebrew Happy Hour podcast. Todd is also the owner of CM Becker and Keg Connection down in Texas, and we're going to go into a deep dive with them about draft systems and things that you can do, tips and tricks for dealing with foam, all the way to some of the best faucets that you can get. So very, very fun episode today, and I'm excited to have them on the show. But first, I'd like to thank all of our patrons over at Patreon. It's your support that keeps this show coming to you for free week after week. If you want to give it any amount over at Patreon, you can head to patreon.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. You can give it any amount, and we still have a special going on. If you give it the $1 level, you'll be able to get your own set of homebrewing diy stickers and will also get you access to our ad free rss feed we also produce these episodes early for our patrons and they get a bonus episode every month so if you really want to get some of those really great features head over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewing diy Another way to support the show is by writing us a review. You can go to podchaser.com, or if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, just scroll to the bottom of your app right now, and right there you can write us a review. Any star value is great. The feedback is really what we want to get, and it really helps improve this show and also helps other homebrewers find this show. Another way to support the show is to head over to coffee.com. That's k o - f i Dot com, and you can give a one-time contribution. This is a new service that we're trying out, and the idea is that you can buy me a coffee. I actually went in and changed it a bit, and now you're essentially buying me a beer. So if you want to buy me a beer as a way of saying thanks, just head to coffee.com. That's K-O-F-I.com. The last way that you can support the show is by heading over to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer, and using our sponsor banners. If you... Purchase a your subscription at Brewfather or if you go and buy a brew bag from brewinabag.com, you will then support the show. Your prices will always stay the same, but then they know that we sent you. So always a great way of supporting the show. Do the same shopping you would normally do and be able to, you know, throw a little support to the show. We also have our June Brewers Roundtable. It has now been officially announced. If you head to homebrewingdiy.beer and click on the events tab, that will take you to where you can sign up for our Homebrewers Roundtable. It's open to any of our listeners or really anyone who would like to attend. And this month, we're talking to Brian Rabe of Low Oxygen Brewing. He's going to give a small, short discussion and then open it up for Q&A to all of our listeners to really have a cool discussion about the low oxygen brewing method. So head over to homebrewingdiy.beer and click on the events tab. I'd like to read some feedback I got from last week's show about grain mills. I got this from Chimichu over on Reddit and he said to me, I like your podcast, so please keep the episodes coming. Honestly, though, 10 minutes for an intro to a 30 minute episode is way too much. I know I can skip the intro, but I just want to give you some feedback. And while I do totally agree that 10 minutes is a little excessive, I think last week I just had a lot of announcements to make. Uh, Between feedback and new things that are happening in the homebrewing DIY world, it did take a little bit. So I really do appreciate the feedback, and I will try to be more conscious of how much time the announcements at the beginning of the episode are taking. So that being said... I am going to then pivot right into our episode, but only after I tell you that if you would like to give us feedback, you can always send it to podcast at homebrewingdiy.beer. Head to our website and hit the contact tab and you can fill out that form and it'll send us an email. Or if you hit me up on social media, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, also on Reddit, but just look for at homebrewingdiy, all one word. So let's jump into today's episode where we're going to talk about draft systems, and we're going to have the crew from the Homebrew Happy Hour podcast. I'd like to welcome my two guests here on the show today. I have Josh Stubing and Todd Burns from the Homebrewing, the Homebrew Happy Hour podcast. Welcome, guys. Hey, thanks for thanks. having us. Oh,
2: yeah, we're, awesome. we're glad to be here.
1: Awesome. Well, I, I'm so super happy that you guys are on my show. If, if any of you do listen to Homebrew Happy Hour, you'll know that a couple weeks ago I was actually on, on their podcast and I had a great time being on the show with Josh. And uh, why don't you just start off by maybe telling the, my listeners about Homebrew Happy Hour and maybe some of the things that you guys cover?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Homebrew Happy Hour, uh we've been doing since 2015 as a Q&A podcast. Uh we had a good I think it was 14 month of not producing any content after I mean we did it for like a year and then we stopped doing it. I don't like talking about it really, but we'd, we 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 um when we started back up 3 years ago, we added James Carlson who uh, couldn't be on here, unfortunately, now. But he's the director of operations for CM Becker. Todd, who's the other co-host and on the show right now with us, is uh, the president, and we call him the chief keg washer of Keg Connection. And I do all of the marketing stuff for Todd's brands. But, yeah, the show started as just a Q&A for people on, like, draft systems mainly and kegging stuff. That was our expertise. And uh, we've kind of grown into, you know, interviewing people in the industry, other podcasters like yourself, and taking questions all across the spectrum because now we have access fortunately in-house or our industry friends to take questions on you know uh, brewing solutions on ingredients building recipes uh, equipment for fermentation all of the above so it's really cool seeing where the show's gone over the last five years now that we've been doing it and and kind of, you know, the community we've been able to build from just doing this kind of goofy podcast from our offices, you know?
1: Exactly. And Todd, I'd like to know a bit more about maybe CM Becker and Keg Connection and how long those have been around.
2: Sure. So Keg Connection, we started about 13 years ago, uh, approaching 14 years, I believe now, right, Josh? Yeah. And uh, we've been doing that and then... We've also, CM Becker, I purchased about four years ago. It's actually been in business in the United States for about 35 years. And it's a kind of parent or sister company in Germany for over 40 years. So we've been building faucets and flow control type faucets and disconnects for the homebrew industry for for a very long time.
1: And and Keg Connection is more of a general homebrewing shop. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. When we started Keg Connection, it it was really, we we specialized in kegging and draft beer. And and that's pretty much all we did for many years. Actually, a large part of our business now are ingredients, homebrew supplies, and all those types of things. But, you know, our original passion for the draft is is still very evident on the site because we... uh, it's you know it's kind of our I would say our biggest category and the and the the, the category that we put the most focus on. Uh, we actually purchased another site about uh, I guess that was it's been a little over two years, almost three years. But it's uh, homebrewsupply.com. dot com, and they were very focused, obviously, on the homebrew supplies and that part of it. So now we're doing everything between the two sides so that, that's been a lot of fun for me because my passion's always been the home brewing and I, I've done it for many many years and, and still enjoy doing it almost on a weekly basis now so
1: so let's talk about your guys's homebrew setups uh, uh, Josh what are you brewing on and what does your setup look like right now
0: So, uh, my house, I brew with my pop. That's my favorite thing about home brewing has always been uh, the communal side of it or the community rather side of it. I like, you know, we're not, we are about to form, I say about to. We've been talking for the last five years basically about starting a homebrew club in South Austin, but uh, one of these days we're going to get to it. But my pop and I brew all grain batches in 10 gallon volume on a cooling, like an igloo cooler type of system. Uh, it's, you know, old school, but it's, you know, what works for us because we're outdoor brewers, which in Texas is, isn't a super uh, popular thing right now as we're going into summer and it's with <laughs> us too, it's, it's not the best time to be uh, outdoor brewing, but we, we make it work. We start early if it's going to get hot in the day, but we, um, yeah, we use a cooler system for the most part doing all grain batches. I just brought home. Talk about cool equipment. I don't know if you've seen the Spike uh, all-in-one. I think they're calling it the Spike Solo. They sent us a prototype, and um, a buddy of ours who came down, he – Kenny, he, he's, he calls himself the Brewer of Seville. We tried to do a brew day when he came to our headquarters on it, and it failed miserably, and the beer got scorched, and it was all just a mess. So my dad and I are going to either this coming weekend or in sometime in June do an uh, actual test batch on this. So I'm excited because I've never used an all-in-one that was not like a grandfather type of system and I would love to have that become our primary for 10-gallon batches because then that would mean we could brew inside, and it wouldn't matter that it's 105 degrees outside in the middle of the day. We could brew in the comfort of air conditioning because I am a man of convenience. I couldn't agree more on the going electric.
1: I, I it, It's a big goal of mine in the next year is to actually go 100% electric. I'm still a propane birder on a keggle out in the garage, and not, I'm in Denver, Colorado, not super hot, but still it's, it has to do with things like I want to be able to brew on a whim and just do it in my mm-hmm. kitchen at seven o'clock at night and not have it be a big deal. And, and those all-in-one systems really appeal to me for that reason. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Todd, what, what is your, what, what does your setup look like?
2: I have a three best, uh, three vessel Herms system. It's a uh, 20 gallons. So I get between 15, 17 gallons out of it at a time. I also have a glycol, ferment, uh, glycol fermenter so that I can keep things uh, cool, carbonated, all that kind of, <laughs> all the bells and whistles. I, I, t- I tell you, people talk about uh, not liking to brew in the summer and I'm like, what are they talking about? That's my favorite time to brew. It's too <laughs> hot outside, right? So uh, I, I love the system. I, I've brewed on pretty much every system you could possibly imagine. And this one's my favorite. I, I do like the the cooler system as well. It, it, to me, you you know you the way that you brew on it is is efficient and and to me it's a very easy system to brew on. But this Herm system has is, is a changed me as a brewer. It, the amount of consistency that that I can get out of it, it it's just amazing. I, I almost never have a bad batch of beer anymore. It's uh, you know every once in a while there might be a I didn't do something exactly or, or the recipe was one that I wasn't real happy with, but for the most part, as long as you don't make really stupid mistakes uh, you can brew pretty damn good beer on it. So I, I actually, since I say really stupid mistakes, I should mention a good example <laughs> of that. The system does not work good. If you forget to put your false bottom in it and you get uh, all <laughs> you know, like 30-something pounds of grain and uh, pour the water in there. I did that on my second to last brew. Uh, So uh, that was a lot of fun, uh, pulling everything out, putting the false bottom in and putting it back in again. But hey, the beer actually turned out great. So So,
1: Sounds like a a hot, scorching mess, but then it's funny how you do those types of things, and that beer turns out fine, and then you worked on a beer, really honed in the recipe Tried to do everything (laughs) perfect i'm doing it for this competition and it's kind of (laughs)
2: the it's it was really funny because i'm screaming what why is my mat why is it sticking why does it keep sticking i can't get it to flow what's wrong and and then i look over and see my false bottom sitting on the counter and i'm like oh crap so you know what those things happen and it's part of brewing and yeah, you can recover it and have the best beer you've ever brewed. I've, I've had it happen more than once.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I I can use an example. I, I did a, a batch on a friend who owns a brewery, and he had a small system at his brewery that uh, he was using for test batches. And he ca- called me up and was like, "Hey, you want to brew on my test my test system?" And I was like, "Great!" And in the process of him letting me use his stuff. I decided to just throw straight hops in there and not whirlpool. And I totally clogged up his plate chiller and ended up having to use ice wands like from the kitchen dipped in sanitizer to cool down my, my wort so I could pitch it and ended up being one of the best Saisons I've ever made. So it's funny. Yeah, how, awesome. yeah. Those types of things always happen and that's just part of, of brewing in general. Um, when it comes to, you know, electric style brewing, like, you know, these Herm systems, uh do you really like when when you you specifically talked about this is the most consistent beer that you've really been able to make since starting to brew what do you think it is about an electric style system that allows you to have such good consistency
2: Oh the the one thing is just the temperature I mean I'm able to keep the temperature so consistent and you one one thing I've learned brewing on the system is no matter how many times you calibrate it, no matter how many things you do, it's you, you you still have to always get out a thermometer and check it. But you know you can make adjustments. The adjustments are are fairly slow, but but they're also again very consistent. So I I try to err on the side of of if if I'm gonna have the temperature not perfect in the beginning after I do the strike that. I like it to be maybe a little lower than it should be and then, and then start to raise it up because if you, you know, if you get it too high, uh, there's obvious consequences of that. So uh, that seems to work really well. And then pretty quickly, I can get it to, you know, if if I'm trying to mash it 152, I can get it to that 152 and keep it there the whole time. And you know, that to me, the temperature is everything when you're, when you're brewing, if what you're looking for is that consistency.
1: I I couldn't agree more. And so, for example, this brewery controller that you have, it has a PID built into it, is
2: that right? It does, yes. And, you know, you you can also, so you can, it's, so I should back up a little bit. We have used about five different controllers, and, and we've really been trying to perfect the controller. Cause eventually we, we would like to release a system like this, but I've, I've never been fully happy with the controllers. And this, the very last controller that we got is literally a dial that you turn. And the old one, you could do a lot of steps and, and these types of things, which you could do with this one. But I found that it, if you keep it super simple, then you don't have a lot of variables and and you can control things better. But you, if your temperature, say it's two degrees off according to your thermometer versus what your probes say, you, you know, you just dial it that direction that you need it to go, regardless of what the uh, of what it says, <laughs> and and you, and you get to that temperature right away. So
1: exactly, and and that's something that I personally do all the time. Is I go based. I have a thermometer that I know is calibrated. I calibrate it all the time you know, do the ice water test, make sure it hits that exact 32 degrees. And then when I go and do my temperatures and and I've been using, for example, my neighbor has a a mash and boil system and I've been going over and borrowing it and using it so I could have an electric system for the last few batches. And I found that there's a lot of variance in the column, right? So for Mm -hmm. example, if your probe is sitting at the bottom of your column versus the top of your column, you want to get temperatures throughout that entire column,
2: correct? Yeah, we, we actually, on my system, I have a probe permanently on the top and the bottom. Yeah. The temperature reading is very different. So what I always try to shoot for is I take my thermometer and kind of stir right in the middle while I'm taking the temperature. And then I, I go off of that. I consider that to be my temperature, you know, right or wrong. That's the way I do it. And and I do use it. We, we have a, a company in the United States called Kessler that we that we buy real precision Thermometers and hydrometers from, and I use a calib. I have a calibrated lab thermometer from them, and I use that to calibrate any other thermometer I'm using. So it's, it, you know, it works. It works really well.
1: That that's awesome. I I kind of wish I had access to something
2: like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know, it's great. We 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 have them, and it they're so accurate already that sometimes you, they're, they're quite a bit more expensive, and sometimes you feel like you uh, you kind of got ripped off because the of calibration is you know it's like uh, at 152 this thermometer reads 152.2 and you're like wow that, I, I didn't need it calibrated but of course i didn't know that right
1: <laughs> yeah well and that's the thing is is that if you don't have a calibrated uh, and i give you an example i had a, th- a meat thermometer once and this is a, a cooking analogy but I had a meat thermometer once that somehow got whacked whacked out of calibration i didn't check the calibration before i cooked a turkey and it said this turkey was done i went and cut into it and it was pink as hell inside and i ruined an entire turkey and it it is important to have your thermometer calibrated more important than people might give it and it's something that a lot of people don't do i at least uh, uh, with homebrewers that i brewed with it's strong yeah yeah, super common. Uh, let's, let's talk a bit about draft systems since you guys definitely talk a lot about draft systems. And, you know, this is Homebrewing DIY. We we, we talk about people building keezers all the time. We talk about people uh, taking different refrigerators and hacking them into kegging systems. And I know that you guys get a ton of questions when it comes to people building out their own kegging systems. If I were today a brand new home brewer and I wanted to go from bottling to kegging, what would you say are the essentials that I would need to keg if I wanted to to do it uh, at least to the most beginner level?
2: Oh, you know, we, we have kits that are, Literally in the hundred dollar low hundred dollar range, sometimes even under a hundred dollars, that will allow you to keg. Uh, now, if you if you have a keg on there, you know some sometimes people buy our kits without a keg because they have they have a keg or a friend gives them a keg. But if you have a keg on there, you can still easily uh, stay under the two hundred dollar range and have a system that'll work. So you you don't. I think the perception is you have to spend a lot of money, but you really don't. And even with a basic system that has maybe a, a party type faucet, a plastic faucet on it, when you get ready to build a keyser or you get ready to convert a fridge, it's literally you can pop that off, uh, put a shank on there, drill a hole, and now you've got a refrigerator kit. So it's it's not a, it's it's not a difficult thing to do. Re- so basically, what you need to answer the actual question is <laughs> you need a regulator. Need the CO2 cylinder, Need the lines for both gas, liquid, and then you need whatever end you're going to have to dispense, which will either be a party style faucet, a, uh, you know, a faucet with a, with a shank that you can go through a, a hole with, or a, obviously a beer tower would be the other option.
1: Yeah. And, and let's start with the party faucet. I know that I only at this point use party faucets for their intended purpose. And that's if I take beer to go as a party and obviously people always, I'm sure. And I know that I've listened to your show. And when I have people ask the question of like, how do I get rid of foam in a party faucet? And I know that foam in a party faucet is something that is really common. Uh, what would you yeah. say it, when it comes to like foaming and foaming issues is the number one issue in draft systems to solve that?
2: So, you know, we have a we have a party faucet that's actually a flow control faucet that you still hold in your hand, has a little trigger on it. I, I, I jokingly, or maybe seriously say that it's a $50 solution to a $3 problem. So uh, they're not <laughs> cheap. They're like 50 bucks, but you could put one of those on there and have full flow control, eliminate the foaming altogether. Uh, so that that's what I do, i have actually. Th- this is kind of embarrassing, but I'm serving my beer out of a party faucet in my barn right now, because uh, Josh and I are building this colossal keyser for a uh, homebrew con. Because we're going to do, you know, they, they've moved homebrew con digitally, and we're 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 going to do a presentation this year. And uh, I I was, I was like, oh, we'll build a keyser, It'll take a couple of days, and I think we're like on week two, right, Josh?
0: Yeah, it's it's coming along though. It's coming along. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but but anyway, uh, you know, the, the problem with foam, I think the number one issue that people have with a party faucet when you go to a keg party or something is uh, that the they're tapping a brand-new keg, and when you tap a brand-new keg, it, it, it tends to foam a little bit in the beginning. But, the, but what happens if you watch people is if it starts to foam when they press down on it, they think that if they don't press down on it as hard – that, that that will keep it from foaming as bad and it has exactly the opposite effect. If you only press down it a little bit, you cause a bunch of turbulence and you get nothing but foam. So the most important thing, if you have one of those, you know, $3 faucets is push it all the way down as far as it'll go and let it flow that way. Uh, of course, temperature is super important. You uh, A lot of people that serve those are serving them on ice. So temperature typically is an issue, but if you're not, and, and you've got warm, Warmer beer, anything over 36 to 38 degrees, you're going to get foam with that type of faucet. Uh, and then uh, the other solution is to put a longer line on it. So, you know, they, they recommend a five-foot line for proper restriction uh, on a direct draw system, uh, with three sixteenths ID. But uh, you know, you could put seven or ten feet on there if you're having some foaming issues, and, and that additional restriction will help you as well. I'd love to talk a bit about
1: restricting and kind of figuring that out for yourself. Let's say, you know, I built a keezer for myself. I built my first keezer back in 2014. I'm now on my second keezer. And luckily for me, when I was building my first keezer, my best friend at the time was a draft tech and he had all of the tubing and everything in his truck. And it was awesome. We just went and like built out a keezer. Right. Um, And he knew how to restrict line, Like in his head, it was like, you know, something he did all the time. But I know that there's kind of a mathematical equation that you can figure out to figure out how long a line needs to be. Um, What would you say are the factors into figuring that out?
2: Yeah, there is definitely a mathematical equation for that. And when that comes into effect, typically would be if you're installing a system in a bar and you're going to do a long draw system where you have uh, actually a different kind of line. And and uh, you're you're cooling the line, and then you're dropping down to the what they call the choker line, and there's all and then you have to you have to compensate for going up, for going down. I mean, there's a lot of, of complicated figures that are involved in that. In fact, I, I you know I've taken a draft beer class where we talked about that for two days, but but really you know people have been doing direct draw systems forever, and. Everybody's already done the calculation on that. And I think it technically it turns out to be like four and a half feet, but everybody just says five feet. Uh, the, the problem you run into, though, is again there, there's variables. So if your keyser is, you know, it has a controller on it, and it's plus or minus three degrees. Maybe you're you're opening it up occasionally because you got a six pack in there as well, uh, and your temperature gets higher then. And you start having foaming problems or you've got, you know, one or the other, you, you over carbonated your beer, or you're using a very highly carbonated beer, you know, because that's the style and then, then all those things will affect it. And, you know, the rule of thumb is just add, add a little more line to compensate for anything that you might run into. That's why a lot of people order their systems like either a seven, 10, or even, even sell them a 15 foot of line. I, I think that's, complete overkill. I mean, and your beer is going to pour extremely slow, but I think it's not a bad idea to put seven to 10 feet yeah. on there. If, if you.
1: Yeah. I personally do seven feet on all mine, but the reasoning being is I actually at times try to overcarb my beers a bit if I'm, uh, bottling. Right. So like, for example, if I'm going to bottle straight from my system, I personally don't have a beer gun. I should totally get one because I bottle enough. Uh, but, what I do is I overcarb it a bit and then for a couple days ahead of time, and then I go and I've built this like, you know, homebrewing DIY. I've totally DIY myself a a beer gun out of like a racking cane and a picnic tap and some pretty crazy stuff, but it works really, really well. But one of the things I have to do is I have to overcarbonate my beer a bit so that I don't lose carbonation in the bottling process. Um, you know, I know that a lot of people, when they're asking questions about, hey, I'm, I'm now kegging, but I want to do some bottles to go for a competition or or just bring like a six-pack with me. You know, what are some of the tools that you could get that would help with that process?
2: Well, you know, Lickman the, makes their beer gun. I've tried every counter-pressure bottle filler you can imagine, and we, and we sell different ones, but that, that's the one I use now because it's just – so straightforward and simple and be, because you're pressuring up the bottle and putting the beer in at the same pressure you don't lose any you don't lose carbonation you don't get foam coming out it's but you know the other counter pressure bottle fillers like and you can make one uh, are use a similar idea that you're you basically open a valve and let the air in and you purge the bottle of course so you don't oxygenate the beer and then once you've purge that bottle with co2 you push the cap down and it and it seals it and you bring it up to 10 psi and then you deliver the beer at the same or what i'm sorry whatever carbonation level you're using and then you uh deliver the beer at the same pressure so that i mean that works very well
1: it does and and it's also something where if you're filling from a keg you obviously don't have yeast and things like that in the bottom as well right yep
2: all right. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> we, all, we all have, but uh, uh, especially in the very, very beginning, that's one thing. If you're going to be bottling beer for a competition or something, uh, you should drink a few beers out of the keg first, because you're almost certainly going to get some sort of settling unless you've you know, clarified your beer for a month uh, in the secondary and we're super careful. You're always going to get some you know particulates in there, so it's always good to pour a few beers before you start uh, before you start bottling them for the keg.
1: Yeah, I, I call those the sludge beers um, when I first uh, <laughs> keg a, when I first put it in a keg. I get it carbonated. My first like three or four pints are are the the nickname is actually the sludge beer at my house. Um, <laughs> I like
2: that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but then it's it's funny as you get those three or four pints out. I do tend to find my clear beers. Right now, hazy IPAs are all the rage. But if I were going for a clear beer, I do find them with uh, gelatin, for example. And after that first few, it's crystal clear. And it's it's amazing, right?
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. To me, there's nothing. There's something very appealing. If you're serving your beer to a, your, your homebrewed beer to somebody that may not always drink homebrewed beer. It's always amazing to me when you pour a perfectly clear glass and you hand it to them and they taste it, and they always do the same thing. They go, this is homebrewed beer? Like, it's impossible to make a good homebrewed beer. You know, I mean, it, people are amazed when you have a, a good tasting beer, but also a, a very clear beer. Uh, we, we had a, uh, I had a, a group of guys that I go you know, opening weekend of deer season with every year, and somebody else brewed a keg of beer and gave it to us, and we and it, it, it was just, everyone was cloudy. And, and when I asked him about it later, he's like, "Yeah, oh, that doesn't really bother me, but it, it does bother people that aren't used to, it, you know. Exactly.
1: And, and well, and a good example is like when the hazy IPAs first started hitting, I would say three years ago, mm-hmm. and I would be listening to homebrewing podcasts, such as homebrew happy hour, just kidding. Uh, but the <laughs> idea is that, uh, I would be listening to podcasts and and beer commentary and reading it and they would all be like, Oh, this orange juice beer, this doesn't look like the way beer should look. And it took a long time for people to really be on board of not having like a crystal clear IPA
0: um, because the haze is all the rage now. Right. Oh, that sounds like our podcast. I think you were listening to us.
2: uh, (laughs) My co-hosts sometimes have negative (laughs) comments concerning uh, hazy beers and some other styles of beer i don't always share the uh, uh, the belief in but I, I do have to tell you josh i i poured a, a sour the other day it came in a, a 12 packs of samples and and i poured it in the glass and sat down and i said i don't know why josh doesn't like this these sours this smells great i took a sip of it and it was the most god-awful beer I think I've ever had in my life. So uh, you <laughs> remember that night. Yep.
1: Well, my, right. I, I have a bit of a story like that. My neighbor uh, across the street, he always works Great American Beer Festival every year because we're here in Denver. Uh, and sad that Great American Beer Festival in 2020 is also going to be a remote yeah. uh, conference. So uh, it's, it's heartbreaking to me. But he always got, got an allotment of beer because he worked the festival, and that was kind of one of the ways that they, they paid them. And he got this case of a sour beer that was probably the worst sour I've ever had in my entire life. And I still have a ton of them that <laughs> I can't even bring myself to drink and I can't bring myself to give away. But because it's beer, I can't get myself
2: to pour it out. So, you send a couple of Josh, that'd be great if you can. <laughs> hey man, I'll do
0: I'll do an Instagram chug <laughs> challenge. That sounds great. So so question Josh, do you not like sour beers? Is that a thing? You know that I, I've been accused of that. I don't get it. I don't understand. No, I, I can't. I've had one sour in my life. It was at Great Notion in Portland. We were there for Homebrew Con. A listener Uh, and his girlfriend uh, took us on a tour me and me and joe who works for homebrew supply and is also on our show frequently gave us like a tour they drove us around and they're like joe loves hazies joe loves sours joe you're gonna love this place josh just you know come along and they had one that was called like blueberry muffin from great notion and i tell you what i didn't uh make a weird face when i drank it now i'm not gonna go out of my way to buy it but you know sours i'm just happy. That there is a niche for people to drink what they like. Like, I, my pop, his favorite beer, whether he admits it today still or not, is Lone Star. I don't know if you ever had Lone Star, guys. I've been it's to not, Texas. I've had a Lone yeah, Star. It's not very <laughs> good <laughs> to me. To me. But I, I and I always tell him because sometimes he'll get embarrassed and I'll say, Pop, drink what you like. Who cares if people, it, there's a reason why Lone Star is still on the shelves. It's not because nobody, doesn't drink them and nobody doesn't like them. And so with sours, that's my approach. I'm willing to try them. I just haven't found one that I'm willing to endorse.
2: I I, I have to say one thing real quick. Uh, Josh, There's that's not true exactly. There was another sour you liked. When we toured uh, New Belgium, you at least told them that you liked one of the sours. Because I'm polite. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, man, new Belgium
1: has really good sours. So if you didn't like those ones,
0: <laughs> no, I, and I forget, you know, and this was so long ago we went, we, it was like right when we launched the podcast a month later, one of our vendors got us to hook up and get, and their director of, uh, quality assurance or field director of quality or whatever he is, Matt Meadows. It's true. I mean, he, you want to talk to a guy about draft. He wrote the book on it, right? Like on draft yep. standards. And, um, he gave us this long tour and did our podcast or he did our podcast first and we're like, oh, thank you for your time. He goes, well, I took the day off. Why don't we just hang out? So he gave us like this bad thing tour. We went and got, you know, beer right off the line. And, you know, by the time I had the sour in my hand, I was probably pretty sloshed. So, it probably did taste good. I couldn't tell you which one it was. Todd, do you even remember which sour that he... No, you know,
2: uh, I don't. I, I tell you what I do remember is that I was so impressed with their sours that I bought a couple of bottles and brought them back. And uh, Michael Korkus is the German guy that I bought C. M. Becker from. Him and my dad, who my dad's 85. He's probably, you know, 82 then. I said, man, I brought this bottle back. I paid $20 for it and I, I've saved it. I, I want to have it with with the two of you and i opened it and it so i I really like their sours but the one i bought literally tasted like vomit i mean (laughs) (laughs) so i poured this beer they they both took a sip and they were trying to be very polite i said guys you don't have to drink that and they both they poured it out so fast that i've never seen either one of them move that fast or not years (laughs) You know you that, know that is the risk.
1: That's the risk you could take with a sour. Is uh, you know, you think that because it's blended and and all that kind of stuff, then the next thing you know, uh, the one bottle you bought is is vomit. <laughs> yep. Yep.
2: Uh, and that that room they have in New Belgium, you you may have been there if you're in. Yeah, area. I've been there. Yeah,
1: uh, a couple. That, times.
2: The room they have is just absolutely one of the most amazing things I've ever seen with those.
1: Put them in. Uh, they're foodors. That's what they're called. Foodors. foodors. Yes. Yeah. Uh, though, well, and the thing is, is it, it's actually one of the coolest sour breweries I've ever personally been in. Because when you look at uh, at other sour brewers, they they tend to do it. Like you know, smaller barrels are how they're you're, they're barrel aging it. Like your your standard, like maybe fifty five gallon like wine barrel or something like that. Okay, okay,
2: yeah. And, I, I remember they called it the forest. It was really really neat. I was impressed.
1: Yeah, and, and New Belgium uses the the traditional like fooders that you get from uh you, they actually ship them in from Belgium, and that's what they use. And there it, it is really an amazing sourberry, and it's completely separate of their clean beer brewery. Like it's, it's in right. a completely separate area and they put a lot of real estate into it for all beers that they don't release a lot of. So that's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a niche thing um, that you don't see a lot of the sour beers from new Belgium outside of Colorado anyway. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's get back into a bit more onto a draft system. Cause I have a question that I've been dying to ask you guys. And here's, here's why I personally have never used a flow control tap in my brewing system. I, I have just, you know, the, the the forward sealing type of tap, which works great. Why would I want a flow control versus just a regular tap?
2: I, I'm, I'm telling you right now, you don't. You don't want to use one because if you ever use one, you'll, you'll spend a lot of money and never go back to another tap. So <laughs> <laughs> it just, I mean, no matter what's happening with your beer, you can turn that knob and change the restriction and get a beer that pours perfectly. So if you're, you know, if you're having some foaming issues, if you're, uh, you know, you, your temperature goes up, you have another, or another good example, you talked about overcarbonating your beer. So if you have a beer that you serve at, uh, say, 18 PSI, the equivalent of 18 PSI, because most people understand PSI better than the other ways they measure that. Uh, and a good example of that would be something, actually Coors is is served ar- around that. I think it's about 16 or 17. But anyway, uh, Coors would be Coors Light would be a good example of that. But a better example would be all the Belgian beers and then you're also serving a stout and you've got that at the equivalent of like eight PSI, you, you don't have to have two different lengths of line. You just, you just turn the knob and get it adjusted for that specific beer. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it just makes life a lot easier. And there's always variable. I mean, my, my kegerator and my key, I have a kegerator and a keyser here right now. You know, I open the door, I'm checking something. I'm always getting uh, the temperatures off a little bit and, you know, I just make that adjustment. So it it just, it's, it's, we actually, my understanding is Cornelius invented it and really brought, or at least they're the ones that brought it into Europe and the Europeans embraced it. And then, you know, it was an American company that did all that. And then we didn't, we never did it here because we were used to doing it the other way. So now we're starting to see a lot of bars and restaurants go to that because it just makes it makes things so much simpler and easier for the for the uh, person at the bar. So I'm sure we've all been to a bar where they're pouring beer and the le- and the person is literally has a glass and they're putting foam in the glass, foam in the glass, and then they, you know, they 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 just tip it over and let the foam come out and they keep pouring it. So they're pouring like two beers to get one beer, and with this, they can eliminate that and it saves them a lot of money
1: yeah and the other the other question I have is, you know when I first built out my first keyser, I had a that type of faucet that's i I call them the cheap. they're like brass. they stick if you leave them sitting for a long time, you know what I'm talking about they're the back oh, absolutely
2: they have made that faucet for over a hundred years now.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that, that faucet was my first mistake of uh, kegging. Um, I no longer do that. But my question is, is you know, when you talk about higher quality faucets, you talk about going stainless steel and forward sealing. What is What are some of the advantages of having stainless steel versus brass and and having it be forward sealing versus back sealing?
2: Oh, well, you know, stainless steel, just it's such a, a terrible product, but it's also, you don't have the issues with, you know, possible lead contamination, the, the chrome lining coming off, uh, some of these things that that people, people worry a lot about now. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. I was, a good example would be a faucet in your, uh, house. You know, all the faucets now are NSF rated and they don't have any, any brass that has lead in them and they're very, very careful about it. Well, most, people like you're in denver you're probably getting your water through pipes that have lead welds in them underground right because they've been there yep. for 75 years right so but with the draft beer system you're on plumbing in and do the whole thing so at the end everything else is almost i mean everything we sell is going to be food grade nsf rated lines and clamps and everything else so at the end you know why not put something on there that's that you know is going to be not only sanitary, but not have any contaminants in it. So that, that's the reason for stainless. As far as uh, forward seal, you you nailed it earlier when you said sticking faucets. It, you know, if you have an old style faucet, when you close that faucet, you're basically closing beer up inside the faucet and, the, and it's going to be warm. And it is going to stick within probably a day or so if you're in any sort of a warm environment, whereas with with forward seal, it's it's kind of it's a little confusing to people because you think forward seal means it, you know, seals in the front. So why wouldn't there be be beer trapped that way? It's because when you when you rear seal it, you're you've got a chamber that you're trapping it in. Whereas with forward seal, you're you're literally trapping it at the very very front, and and uh, and, and you're not trapping any beer in there permanently. So.
1: Exactly. Uh, one, one last question I have is geared around, you know, technology and and kegging systems. Um, you know, there's a lot of obviously kegging systems out there that are, are new right now where it's like trying to get how much beer is left in your keg kind of information, right? I know that the old way of doing that was using flow control sensors. And I know at a homebrew level, there's new products like the Play-Doh keg where you can just use the weight of your keg. Um, Have you guys used any systems like that? And what are your thoughts on them?
0: You know, I have an old, (laughs) I've used it once and it didn't work that great, a floating ball that's magnetized and it have a little magnet on the side of the keg that just (laughs) plunk. right to it so as it goes down it shows you just an, a level of what's left in your keg and obviously you sanitize it before you throw it in there but that that is as much as i was willing to invest at the time into knowing uh i love the idea of the, the plate like the weight one i think oh what's his name on instagram his name's george but i think east mill brewing is what he goes by real popular uh instagram thing yeah, yeah. east east,
1: uh, east mill creek brewing I, yes. I love george he's a good george,
0: dude he's a such a good dude And um, I believe he started using that Play-Doh, that weight sensor, didn't he? And it just looks phenomenal because it's a precision technology to know, like, you're not guessing, right? You're not guessing. Now, don't get me wrong, the magnet on the side of the keg, I probably wasn't guessing, but it it presented issues. I I had an off flavor at one and early on, and I blamed it on it. So it was my scapegoat. It's like, oh, I didn't sanitize that magnet ball good enough. Uh, that's why this beer sucked. Not anything I did, but um, <laughs> no, me personally, I haven't, and I would love to hear what Todd has to say because Todd and technology is like peanut butter and and insert something terrible. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, am,
2: I am pretty good at technology, thank you, Josh. <laughs> 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 My technology on this is I take my hand and pick the keg up and feel how much it weighs. <laughs> so, <laughs> I do it fairly frequently with my kegerator. And I, you know, the other way I know it's empty is when it goes and shoots foam out. I, I've never used anything and I, I'm, I'm guilty of that. I probably should try some different products and I'm open to that. But, uh, I, I usually, I usually just pick them up and, and feel how heavy they are. That's how I, that's how I know where the level is. I, I got to be honest. It's what I do too. But
1: uh, <laughs> I, every time I see that 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 ring out there that people are setting their kegs on, I'm like, Ugh. but but you know what? I actually want to use it for is not my keg. My CO two tank is what I want to use it for. Oh no, <laughs> kidding, right? Yeah, because about- the gauges on the CO two tank are never right. And, 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 and is everybody gonna be
2: agreement on that? Yeah. Well, the, the the problem with CO two is it's a liquid. Yeah. So, they're right, but they're only reading PSI. They're not reading weight or volume. So if your high pressure gauge starts to go down, then that means you're out of CO2. It means you only have air la- or CO2 left, and you don't have it, it, but it's not in liquid form. It's, uh, so that means that you're pretty much out of CO2, except for that 800 that you're working from uh the other thing too is when you put your co2 in your kegerator it's going to read you know 400 and something psi and when you put it in your garage in texas it's going to read 1200 psi until the pressure relief valve blows out right so Mm -hmm.
1: yeah i i actually uh have mine outside the my keyser and have it you know, drill. I drilled a uh, a sealed hole for my tubing to go in because I didn't mm. want my tank inside. Plus, I have a twenty pound tank; it doesn't fit my kegerator very well. Uh, but that's that's always been my thing with them. Is like you you never really know how much gas you have until it's like right at the end. Because once that gauge actually does start to drop, like you said, you know that you're right at the end. You've got you you know. It, when I worked in a in a bar and a restaurant, I knew I had hours left if i
2: could see it actually move because oh, definitely- you're right if, if that long i mean yeah my system for that is, is pretty simple too I, I always have an extra two silver because you, you <laughs> just have no control over it so
1: exactly always have a backup it's it speci- specifically if you're in a commercial setting uh for me it's you know i have a 20 pound tank it takes me years to get through it and then when i do get through it i just go down and get it filled that day but that's yeah you know, like- yeah, you know, it's usually yeah, yeah, mission critical.
2: It years to get through mine too. I wouldn't to say that. So.
1: Yeah. So uh, hi, I, I, let's highly recommend right now that everybody gets twenty pound tanks because then you only have to fill them every few years. That's right. <laughs> yeah. They're,
2: they're, they're nice. Uh, you know, they uh, if you can fit them in the system and everything. We you know, it's funny you though. We we sold twenty pound tanks for several years and they just did not sell. I mean, everybody tends to buy five pound. I don't really, I guess it's because they're putting it, maybe they're putting it in their, their fridge or their, you know, we sell fives and tens, but we, we just couldn't sell twenties. I think if you're going to use a 20, you're probably better off getting it from the gas company anyway, and, and just do it in exchange because it stays in hydro and everything. So that, that's probably might be a better way to do it. Yeah.
1: I, well, and that, that is the case actually, when I get mine done, I have to get it filled and then, so when I go to my local homebrew shop and get it filled, they have to fill it. They can't swap it. Right. Cause they don't swap twenties. Yeah. Um, and luckily my guy does fill, but then, uh, the funny thing is, is that with the 20 pound tank, um, I'm actually to where it's about to go out of date and then I'm going to have to swap it or get it recertified anyway. So,
2: yeah, yeah. so what I would do is go to uh, an actual gas company. Yep. And, uh, and swap it with them. And, they should still swap it if it's a day, even if it's close.
1: Yeah, yeah, they'll totally swap it. it and even then, if you go to that same gas company, they could at least certify it for you, right? Yep.
2: Sometimes. Uh, some of them, a lot of gas company, it, it's so specialized, a lot of them have to send it off, but they could probably send it off for you. You know you know who does certify a lot are uh, uh, the people that, that uh, check fire extinguishers. That That's always a good place to look at, too.
1: I've never thought about that. And definitely there's a pro tip for everybody here listening to the podcast. Uh, Call your fire extinguisher company if you need to get a tank certified. And just for those that don't know, uh, tanks like propane tanks and and CO2 tanks do have a certain lifespan. And they want to make sure that they get certified to make sure that they're not damaged. Because, you know, if a CO2 tank, because it is pressurized gas, were to have an issue, it could technically explode and, Mm -hmm. you know, do some pretty good damage if you were standing next to it, it so, get back uh, pretty quick yeah you know, but, i was in,
2: in uh, san antonio one time at a, at a place that did a lot of hydro for us at one time and they had a cylinder that was m- made from basically from a bomb from world war one and i, I asked him what so what's the oldest cylinder you've ever certified and they're like well that one right there is uh it was uh Converted over to a CO2 cylinder in 1919, and we're still testing it.
1: Yeah, Uh, yeah. and those cylinders are tough. I mean, but that's why you have, like, for example, when you get to a 20-pound tank, I think even a 10-pound tank has to have a collar so that if it falls over, you don't break off the the cap
2: and it sprays and turns into a rocket. It is So. so dangerous, and people don't take it seriously enough. So people have been hurt and killed from dropping a CO2 tank and having it Shoot around the room and and uh, you know seriously injure them or kill them. You really should have a chain around it, and you know any larger tank you should definitely have a guard on it.
1: Yes, yeah, I totally agree. And uh, a chain is also a great idea. You don't want them falling over. They're just you know they're they're pressurized gas guys. <laughs> it's a missile. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I I want to thank. You know, I, I want to thank Todd. I want to thank Josh for coming on my show today. I really had a great conversation with you with you all about homebrewing and, and kegging systems and, and everything you guys are doing down there. Um, if I wanted
0: to find Homebrew Happy Hour, where would I find it? You can go to homebrewhappyhour.com. Sorry, that's my radio voice. Um, Yeah, homebrewhappyhour.com <laughs> is our main website because we also uh, – the last – 18 months we kind of relaunched our site and we have a ton of actual content on some of the topics that we cover on the show or some topics we haven't covered on the show yet and we produce a lot of videos and put it there our youtube channels youtube.com forward slash homebrew happy hour and we're on all social media as homebrew happy hour and our podcast can be found anywhere you download podcasts so whatever you like to use i i've noticed lately that uh you know it's been apple for the longest time but spotify has really picked up it's crazy I, how many people are using spotify now to consume podcasts i never would have Never would have thought. Maybe thank Joe Rogan for that, or I don't know if that's just been a trend and I haven't been paying attention. But
1: no, Spotify is really invested in podcasting. It's kind of crazy what's going on over there. They they yeah, good good for them. Yeah, good for them. And I also think that it's something where uh, they also own Anchor, so they're you know where I am actually pod- hosting this podcast and also a, a sponsor of this show. Uh, so the idea is that, uh, you know, anchor is also owned by Spotify, which is into podcast hosting, which I think is now the biggest podcast host out there. I think more on anchor than any other one.
0: I believe it. I've heard anchors. Great. Yeah. I I forgot they were owned by Spotify.
1: Yeah. Look at them.
0: Spotify is just taking over. They're making a play. They're
1: making a play into podcasting. Well, I, I, we're running up on time. So I want to thank you guys for coming to the show and, uh, love to have you back some other time. And, uh, Thank you for being on Homebrewing D- DIY. Thank you
2: for having us. Thank you. We really enjoyed it.
1: I want to thank Josh and Todd for coming on the show. It was a really great conversation. And always love talking about draft systems and all the things going on over at the homebrew happy hour make sure you head over to homebrewhappyhour.com and check out their podcast it's a really fun and cool show and like you said it's a A show you learn something new every week because people are asking questions well that's it for this week and we'll talk next week on homebrewing diy